This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we'll be speaking with Jay Heinrichs. Jay has been an investor for over 40 years and focuses on new development in Oregon. He's one of the most popular posters on Bigger Pockets with over 25,000 posts and 30,000 upvotes. He's seen it all and is here to share some of his wisdom. Here's Jay. Thanks for being on the podcast. No Go ahead and introduce yourself and let everyone know uh, who you are. Yeah, uh, my name is Jay Heinrichs and um, I was uh, born and raised in Cupertino. Started in the real estate business when I was literally 18 years old. Uh, in the Bay Area and have been doing it for 44 years now. I've, I've seen a lot of ups and downs. And what is your current main investing strategy? Uh, right now I'm, I'm doing uh, land in the path of progress, new home construction, uh, value add, uh, and uh, joint venture um, as a capital partner for um, value add investors. Can you go over like a case study of, one of your projects? The value adds that we do are, are generally investors of ours buying homes to sell to investors in California or in other high price markets that want to own rentals. So we'll uh, provide capital for them to buy rental properties in you know, Indianapolis, Cleveland, Kansas City, uh, the Deep South, uh, up into the Northeast. These folks will buy those houses, they'll do all the work, and then sell them to investors that are looking for cash flow. Do you happen to have any like specific numbers about a deal that you may have done in the past? Well, we do quite a few of them. We'll do anywhere from a hundred to sometimes close to 200 of those a year. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're simultaneously in all those markets. So we have a ground partner, a vendor. Um, some of them are name brand turnkey companies. And I like to tell people it's like, um, uh, you know, we're flooring inventory like a car dealer does. You know, we're providing the capital for a car dealer to put cars on their lot, resell them, and then everybody gets paid when the car gets sold. So we're providing the capital for these operators in the Midwest to go out and buy the, the wholesale asset, do the rehab. And once it's all tenanted and rehabbed and ready to go, nice and fresh, that, that asset is then sold to a cash flow investor. Makes um, sense. Like I said, primarily... Uh, East Coast or California, Washington, Oregon, where the, um, you know, you can't, you can't buy a rental property for 80 or 90 grand, like the stuff that we do. No, you can't. So you guys are basically not going out and sending out letters and or talking to brokers. You guys are finding operators and supplying them with capital so they can do their jobs. Exactly. We're, we're the little engine that could completely under the radar. Nobody knows who we are. Uh, we don't do any of the sourcing of the property. That's what these guys do. And, um, and then we get a, a piece of the pie for doing that. And uh, of course, the operator, like any, any value-add operator, they're just doing value-add to sell to, to uh, cash flow investors as opposed to, and we do quite a bit of funding also for um, value-add operators that are selling houses retail. Like, um, you know, I'm here in Vegas today and, I closed one on Friday and closed one on Monday and those all went retail. And then in Oregon, we'll, we'll do some retail as well. 
So, so that's, that's that part of the business. And then the other part of the business that we're doing is uh, uh, we have land banking opportunities. There are, I mean, they're not opportunities that are open for the public. I mean, they're, they're deals that I've done. <clears throat> I've got one in uh, Roanoke Park, which uh, you probably know where that is up by Santa Rosa, a uh, four acre track right across the street from uh, the new Grattan Casino. And then I've got a 120 acre tract in Hillsboro, about a mile from uh, Intel that I, I land banked starting in 2009. So those are all long term. Those will take a decade or two to come to fruition, but they're 10 to 20x. Well, like the property in Runner Park, I only paid 25,000 for it. And I just listed it for 3 million. So, wow. the, but I, I've, I've owned it since 1994. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm pretty yes. sure a lot of people would be down to own a property for 25 years to make three million off of it. Yeah. Well, a lot of them would say no. It doesn't cash flow. You're stupid. You know. You know how it goes on the the uh, opinion, the public opinion. It's got to cash flow, otherwise, it's not worth anything. Um, so, you know, for us, our cash flow is generated by doing the short term, providing the capital. Uh, we don't we don't have rentals. Um, per se. And um, I, I did a lot of rentals over the years, but I, I like the in and out and not having to deal with the tenants. It's, you know, we're just, we're in a level where we don't, we don't need to have bank financing for us to get into properties because we're paying cash for all this stuff. You know, there's no, there's no debt on anything that we do. So when people are starting out, looking for rental properties or they want to be an investor or buy an old investor. Not many start out with all cash, right? Most of them have to have some sort of financing. So buying the rental properties is the easiest way to leverage up and leverage, of course, is an important component of building a portfolio and whatnot. That's how people who, you know, have a, you know, a day job, so to speak, um, that's their easiest and, and probably their best way to, to get in the game and start building a portfolio and, um, you know, going on the real estate, right? For, for us, we don't need that because we're moving money, you know, weekly and we make our, we don't need cash flow. Our cash flow comes from getting paid off on loans and joint venture stuff. That's right. So, so then the other thing that, that we do, uh, and we've been doing for about six years now, um, is we build new construction. I'm the 24th largest builder in the Portland market um, out of 30. Uh, the top 30, I'm number 24. Now, before you get all excited, that's only about 32 permits. But it's, it's still, uh, you know, they're $500,000 houses. You know, we got nice margins on them. And so that, that's been very good. And then I would say I'm in one of the top five infill builders in Charleston, South Carolina. And again, before we get all wild on numbers, you know, that equates to eight or nine or 10 houses a year in Charleston, because you, in the areas where we're working, the historic areas in downtown, you simply can't buy lots. That's very difficult to find lots. So uh, we scour the earth for those and, and we usually can end up with, like I said, eight, 10 of them. Although the price points there will be anywhere from 400. I closed one in January for 2.2 million. Oh. Um, 20, 2,600 square foot new build. Um, so the prices in Charleston and the historic areas are more akin to <clears throat> the Bay Area. Uh, the stuff will sell for 700 to 1,000 bucks a foot. Of course, it's not like Palo Alto. There could be 2,000 a foot, but it's, it's still up there, right? 
Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what we do for a living. Um, we have the, basically those, those outlets. Other than the construction, of course, the construction we run with bank debt. Um, but the other type of funding we do is all with cash. So can you talk about what is your structure with the GPs since you're providing the financing? How do you break up the partnership with the operators and yourselves? Uh, that's real easy because there's no debt. Um, we just come in and pay cash and we own it. And then uh, we have a joint venture agreement with them to execute on the ground. And then when the property is sold, we, we split profits. So can you tell us how do you split the profit? Is it like 50-50 between you and them? Oh, it, 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 can't, it doesn't usually end up being 50-50. It's usually anywhere from 20 to 40% on our side. You know, definitely, uh, but what we allow these guys to do is we allow them to scale because everything we do is on accrual. So their, their option is to go to a hard money lender who's, doesn't matter, in today's day and age, you pretty much have to have cash equity. You know, the days of, you know, no money down, hard money loans. Well, it can happen for certain vendors, generally does not happen. And so, you know, at the rate some of these guys are going where they're, you know, flipping 10 houses a month, which is, can be quite common in the Midwest, uh, you know, at the price points, because it's, you know, 80, 90, thousand dollar houses but if you have that kind of volume going you pretty much need six months of inventory in the pipeline right you got to be because you have about a six month cycle by the time you buy them and get them rehabbed and then one of the things that drags on is getting investor loans is pretty much a 60-day process you can't very seldom can you get them done less than 60 days so um at that point, they would have to have 60 houses in inventory, right? So if, let's say their cost is 50,000 a house all in, um, and I'm just using round numbers, you know, they need $3 million. And for $3 million, they probably need 20% down with hard money lender. So all of a sudden they need 600 grand in cash. And now they're paying 12% interest on, you know, $2.4 million. It's going to run them 30, 40,000 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. So dealing with me where we're all cash and no debt, sometimes they need no equity because I've been dealing with them for a decade or longer. And for sure, there's no payments. So we allow them to scale much quicker than they can do on organically. Yep. This is a very capital intensive business. <clears throat> and most people, that's what happens. They, they just don't have the, you know, they can do one or two flips and then their money's tied up. and. So we allow them to have multiple projects going at the same time. Perfect. Doing that, we do better than a normal lender would do. Yep. And how do you go about raising that money? Is it a syndication model or are you kind of like a hedge fund with asset management? No, no, it's not a syndication at all. Um, It's more of a hedge fund model. Okay. um, Where we have very few investors, but they're very large investors. But, you know, I don't advertise for it. It's pretty much comes word of mouth to me through referrals. And I'm, I'm never really looking for money. It, it usually just finds me. One of my people will tell a friend of theirs or, you know, someone will ask me, what do you do? And I just start explaining it. I'm like, oh, well, I'd, I'd like to know about that. <laughs> you know, so. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I usually don't take on more than one or two investors in any one year. Um, and sometimes I'll go a year without needing anybody. So. Mm-hmm. Do you mind going into details on how you structure your hedge fund? 
Yeah, so what I do, because when you're talking about hedge funds, usually to invest in a hedge fund, it's a million dollar minimum. So right there, that I'm not doing the syndication model like what people think about where, you know, dollars $100,000 investors. Right. And then have to, you know, have a, you know, it's what I saw just to digress a little bit. What I saw with a lot of the big weaknesses with the uh, crowd funders was bringing in such small investors. I mean, they'd have a $250,000 loan and have 30 investors in that one loan. Mm -hmm. And then if the loan goes bad, the next thing you know, they don't have a customer service department big enough to handle 40 calls all at once. Right. Yep. You know, all your $10,000 investors are calling every other day and to them it's the end of the world to the crowdfunder. Well, it's only 10 grand, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. So I went the opposite way. I went with the, the, the high net worth folks and limited the amount of them so that I, I'm only dealing with, you know, 10, 11, 12 different personalities. Right. And so I deal with them all personally. It's, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, me and them. And uh, if they have a question, they call me. So are you able to go into a little bit more detail? Like, I don't know, if I, if I want to create a hedge fund, I want to learn how the common structure well, looks I, like. I, I don't have a fund. What I do is if someone comes to me and says, you know, I got $2 million, I'd like to be in your program. We just start a, uh, we start a business together. It becomes the, you know, the, the Jay and Sean LLC, and we're both owners of the business. Got it. They're, they're a managing member, just like I am. They're involved in the daily um, decision-making and uh, you know, they're, they're the owner of the LLC along with me and, um, and they're on the checking account. So it's, they have a hundred percent transparency. What happens with the crowdfunding stuff is, you know, you put your money in, you don't really have access to the books. So when I started this, I wanted my people to have a hundred percent transparency. So they're on the checking account. I mean, if there's 250,000 sitting in their account and they wanted to go take it that day, they just go take it. They don't have to ask me. Got it. Whereas if you go in with a general partner type situation or syndicator, you're putting the money into the syndication and you're not on the checking account. And nine out of 10 times, you're just going to get their in-house audited financials. And that's, you know, with, with reputable companies, that's fine. But with smaller first time operators, you know, got one or two going, you know, and maybe they didn't have a lot of experience managing investor money. Um, there's some temptation that, and, and or some uh, things can happen there. And so anyway, I, I just chose to go the other way where uh, uh, bigger investors, partners, and it's just me and them. Got it. So if, uh, let's say, an operator, they have, let's say, 30 flips in one year in a certain location, you provide the funding, but your partner is probably just one person funding that whole project. Right. Okay, got it. And, and I'll put up a... And, uh, and occasionally I'll put money in and if, and if that company, let's say is short of money, I might, I might fund one, you know, for a couple hundred thousand and then, you know, but that's separate, even though we did it in the company name, that's my, my capital in there. So okay. um, that, that's, that's kind of how we run it. So we don't commingle and, you know, we don't put, you know, investor Y's company with investor P. We just don't commingle anything. One investor is my partner and that particular company buys the asset outright. Got so it. there's no, you know, hey, I'm in partnerships with, you know, 17 people I don't know. Yep, keep it simple. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
And how are you very easy for me to manage it and run it? Yeah, absolutely. So how are you currently running your business? How, how big is your team and what kind of roles are they, are they doing? I have a um, CFO and I have a COO and I have myself and my wife helps me with um, real estate end of it, sales end of it, but uh, all the funding and stuff, we pretty much, because we're doing everything on accrual and not, we don't have monthly payments and we pay cash for everything, it's pretty streamlined. I run it. It's three of us run it. Perfect. So three people, barely any overhead. And, uh, and, I, and I actually uh, work out of my home office in Portland as well. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So I was wondering, what's the best use of your time? What, what makes sense for you to do and what makes sense for you to just hire out and have someone else do? We're struggling a little bit with how to bring uh, VAs into our, our situation, but we struggle with that just in what we can outsource because in our, in our position, we've, you know, we've, we're the stewards of quite a bit of money. So I'm pretty nutso about who's, <clears throat> who's access to the checking and uh, access to our books. So our CFO is my daughter and my COO is my, my son-in-law. So we, everything just is, stays in the family. If we're going to outsource anything, it's going to be like, um, you know, we're going to do our own mailer for lots in Charleston, or we're going to do our own mailer for, for land in, in Portland. And that's pretty much the only time we do any, you know, direct mail for our own stuff. Um, and then the other, other things we would do with VAs is just keeping our spreadsheets and our inventory lists and, and organizing our insurance and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess like your role, the most important thing is maybe talking to more prior to investors, even though it seems like you already have a good amount. Well, my, my, my role is the, the vendors out in the street working with the, uh, uh, the bank, you know, because when we borrow money to build subdivisions, you know, I'm borrowing 15, $20 million and, and it's, it's me. It's my personal guarantee gets, gets those loans. Mm -hmm. So my role is the relationship with the banks and, um, you know, more of the high level type stuff. And then my relationship and, and how I built all this stuff back East is prior to 08, I had a, a really large hard money lending company that specialized in the turnkey finances. That was the Burr strategy before, you know, people think it was just invented, but that's how we did all of all, all turn, turnkey was Burr prior to 08, 95% of it. Uh, and we were the capital that put the California investor into title so that they can just then do a rate and term refi and get all the money, you know, have no money into the deal. So I did a couple thousand of those loans over about a six, seven year period. And I was funding in 15 states and that's where I built, you know, the original teams. So when I go out to these markets, either I'm known, people know who I am because of my old, you know, Silverado days. Uh, or the closing attorneys know me, you know, because I've, you know, like I have one attorney in Jackson, Mississippi. I've probably closed 600 deals with him. If I've closed wow. Nice. So he'll, he'll just refer me. I mean, when you get into that kind of volume and stuff, you know, I, I get, hey, Jay, what about this? Hey, Jay, I just get a lot of stuff that comes to me that other people are just not going to get. That's right. I've been doing it for so long. And, and a lot of people know me. Cool. So I have a question for you. I don't know if it applies to you since you don't actually go out and buy deals, but what, what is your buying criteria? 
and when you decide to just walk away? That's pretty easy. I mean, on our, you know, we're doing all value add. So when I look at, okay, I'm going to go buy a subdivision or I'm going to go buy, you know, um, uh, lots. It's just, it's just math. I just run the math and I look at, um, you know, what's it going to cost? How long is it going to take? And what do I, what do I want to make for a profit? Basically as a new, new home builder, your profits, uh, depending on how competitive it is and what the market is, might be as little as 10% of gross sales. So if you've got a 450 product going out the door, you're gonna, at the end of the day, you're gonna make 10% of that of gross sales, so $45,000. Uh, that's kind of the, the minimum. And if we can get to 15, we're doing really, really good. And anything above 15 is we're hitting it out of the ballpark. Got because it. all the builders back into the back into it the same way. The the people we can't compete against, of course, are the national builders who, you know, they buy everything cheaper than we do. They can they'll build 400 houses. I'm going to build 30. So they're getting better sub pricing, and they're just getting better pricing all along the the, the way. So that's that's why we tend to deal in areas that that don't have. Um, you know, the huge builders competing against us. And that's the infill build business. Gotcha. It's funny how like we look to you as someone who has a lot of volume, has a lot of good discounts, but even to you, there's someone out there who has even better discounts and even better volume. Oh yeah. So yeah. I mean, if I, like I was talking about, you know, I'm a, the top 30 builder in Portland. Well, the top builder is DR Horton at 450 and Lennar at probably 350. And then, Pacific Lifestyles at about 200, and a guy named Holt Holmes, Kubitschek, probably 150, and then, I, then the rest of us are all 20 to 30. <laughs> awesome. Hey, 20 to 30 is still a lot. Okay, I know most people, yeah. if anything, they do like one or two. The big guy that I know here does maybe a seven, you know, so. Yeah, <clears throat> but, but seven for him might be $10 million. Oh, right? easily. Each house sells yeah. for 3.5. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. If I look at, at my production in the last year, I did about $20 million, <clears throat> but I had to do 30 of them. Gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. So do you have any tips for any new investors? And what are some common things that you see that people fail the most at? Um, for new investors, I think the, um, you know, one is just analysis paralysis. You know, they over, overthink things. Um, I, th I think one of the big boo-boos they make is they give up quality chasing paper returns. Uh, in other words, they'll, they'll look at something on paper that says it's a, you know, 10% cash on cash. And then, you know, another property might be seven or eight. And they're, they're like, well, I'm going to take the 10 because it's more, but they don't, they don't understand that the 10 is in a neighborhood that's not as good. Um, the tenants are going to be tougher to manage. <clears throat> They're probably not going to make 10. It's only making 10 on paper because yet they haven't owned it yet. And if they're buying, especially if they're not buying multifamily where they can, can see, you know, trailing 12s or trailing 24s, they're buying a new house that doesn't have any history. So you really don't know what your return is going to be uh, until you own it and you start doing it. And um, so based on that, um, I, I think the advice I always give, and um, I just did this for the the other person, I think was at your table actually uh, at the Oakland event. We had our call. 
I like to, if you're going to go out into the cheaper markets out of California, you just got to really, the first thing you got to hone in on, almost all these cities are interchangeable. They really are. They all have good areas. They all have war zone and hoods and whatnot. Um, you got to pick where you're going to work best with your property manager. But if you can buy as close to the median price point as you can, as opposed to half of the median, you're going to have a much better chance of success. For that exercise, I had him pull up Indianapolis. The medium home price in Indianapolis is uh, between 119 and 129. That's the medium, right? So half the houses sell for less, half sell for more. So if, you, if you're going to buy a rental property and you buy it at 12130, at the medium, when you go ahead of it, that means you're going to have some homeowners buying in there. And you want to buy in areas that homeowners are still buying. If you go for you know, the $60,000 house in a 120 medium, what are you getting? you're getting the worst neighborhood, right? And you're probably getting the toughest tenant and everything else, and you probably have very little to no upside. So for investors that don't live there, that could want to manage this stuff and not going to scale, I think you're going to have in the long run over a five or 10 year holding period, you want to buy quality over, you know, paper returns. Yep, that makes sense. You know, like it's actually very tempting to buy, you know, properties in, a uh, place out of state for maybe 30 grand a unit. It looks good on paper, but you don't know if you're going to pay, right? You don't know if they're going to trash your unit. Yep. I've, I've loaned on hundreds of them, actually thousands of them. And I've owned about 400 of them. And when you get down into way, way below the median, you know, those are very appropriate for mom and pop landlords that live there and their whole, you know, they're that person. Oh, I got rid of my day job. I'm now living the dream being a landlord, right? Well, those people are there daily and they can, they can marshal those people because when they don't pay, you know, you're there the next day, right? But right. when you're sitting in California and your, your person in St. Louis doesn't pay you what's happening. And by the time you corral it, it's 30 days or 60 days. <clears throat> the next thing you know, you've gone four months without any income <laughs> and they've done $2,000 worth of damage on their way out. You're just, I you know, it's just common sense and logic, but, but it seems to leave in the real estate business. The, the quality of the tenant does not go down exponentially with the purchase prices. So you're not going to get the same quality tenant that's going to pay $1,200 and live in an area where the homes are all <clears throat> 120 to 200,000 because they want the schools. They want the six or $700 rent you know, and that's what they can qualify for. So think about it. The, the, the property managers qualify these people at three times income. So if you have a, you know, $600 rental, you only need to make $1,800 to move in. Mm -hmm. Now you've, so you've got $1,800 and that's what the people will make. So now it's $600 for rent. They got $1,200 for the rest of the month. They got to have, you know, utilities. You know, let's say that's 200 a month. Everybody's got a TV. Then they have their cell phone bill, you know, and then they probably have a car and gas. The next thing you know, you know, these people are living on five, $600 a month to go buy food and clothes. And, um, and if you start to think about it that logically, of course those people are on the, on the razor's edge. 
That's why rents don't come in consistently at those rental price points. And people will, you know, they will go to what they can afford. So now let's say take the same market and go for a $1,200 rental. Same thing. You've got to have three times the income. That income is now $3,600 a month. The rent is $1,200, and now they have $2,400 a month to live on instead of less than $1,000. Mm-hmm. And they're living in the same place. Food's the same. Gas is the same. You know, but you you just have a much better tenant. I mean, you have a much better chance of of, of having that tenant be long-term and, 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 and be stable. So that, that's my take on it. Makes sense. Cool. I was wondering, what are your plans for the future? Um, well, I just closed an 89-lot subdivision in uh, December uh, in Portland. And we're just about ready to take our engineered plans into the city, get them approved, and break ground uh, hopefully May-ish. And I will spend the next three years building that out at about 30 houses a year. Um, it could go a little faster depending on what the market does. And I'm going to continue to um, leverage all my contacts in Charleston. Um, I've started to do infill new builds in Indianapolis, uh, which we've got uh, four of them going there. And so I'm, I'm just, I enjoy what I do. I kind of like to think of myself as a, a young 63. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get to a point where you get into a power position and it gets a lot easier, right? When, when you don't have to work, you know, I don't have any social media presence to raise money. Like all, I see all the kids out there doing, I don't have to do any of that. So for me, I just have to find the right, right vendors to deal with and, and or, um, you know, by, by the right projects that I, I can put together. So while we're on that same subject, you purchased that lot with cash, probably with another investor. And which one's that? Um, the one you're currently working on. Oh, the 89 lots? Yeah. 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 Okay. Now that one I actually put, I brought my same team of people and we did pay cash for that. That was 5.4 million. Okay. And then you said you usually get construction loans or do you also? I do. I'll get, I'll get an infrastructure in the, if this was five years ago, I probably could have bought that property with a, maybe a million down, million and a half down and leveraged it. But we are in a little bit of a, you know, a changing time in the market and I wanted to have um, even though it you know obviously it affects your IRR but it's such a strong <clears throat> IRR even paying cash with it it's still way up there and also I just wanted the safety net of having no debt on the dirt so when we go to do the we'll build the lots for about 35,000 a lot and so the only debt we'll have on it before we go vertical is 35 grand and the lots are worth anywhere from you know 120 to 150 so we always keep a huge equity cushion in. If for some reason the market is slower, I won't get way ahead of my ski tips um, if I have to slow down the construction. But I'll have inventory, and if it if it goes, you know, it gets hot again, uh, we have the lots to build on. And and my bank will give me twelve spec loans at a time, and then uh, pre sales don't count. So <clears throat> I can come out of the box with you know two starts every two weeks. And then uh, if we get pre-sales, I can just keep going. So, you know, theoretically, if I, if I can get the crews to work that fast, which 
you know, about four houses a month for our crews is about as good as we can do. Uh, that, that's how we would move through it. How big is your crew to do four houses a month? Well, we have a GC and we have a bunch of subs, right? So it just depends on right now. One of the biggest things in new construction is, is subcontractor price creep and just finding people to do the work. Um, because a lot of kids growing up and younger people are just choosing not to go into the trades. So it's, unfortunately it can be, you know, labor can be a, a difficult thing and trades can be a difficult thing. So um, we've got a, like the builder on that, um, you know, is from that community. He's built 300 houses there. He's already got, he's just got great subs all, all with them. So I, you know, we'll pay a little bit more than PR Horton will, but at least I got him, right? <laughs> That's right. Stuck and he's reliable, him. does his job on time. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so do you think there's maybe like, what, 10 people, 20 people who are on the site? Uh, well, no, it, it's, you know, you start, you know, you have your, your dig out guy, which is one or two people. And then you have your, you know, your foundation crew comes in, which is two or three. And then you have your framer that'll be anywhere from three to four people. And so the idea is, as you start two, they can usually do two at the, simultaneously, and then you wait two weeks, and then as as they as they put those in, then they move over to the next ones, and then the next ones, and it takes about ten days to two weeks to to frame the house. And once it's framed, it depends on what time of year too. Sometimes we have to let them sit once they're framed and watertight. They might have to sit for thirty days before they're dry it. They're dry enough that we can. Uh, continue on gotcha. the moisture content in the Northwest. And can you go over the terms of your construction loan? I don't, I'm not sure if I caught it correctly. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, we enjoyed 1.5% uh, for the last six years, but prime is now at 5.5. So we're one and one over prime. So is the way it work is you put down 35% per home and then they put on the other. No, I already, because we paid cash for the dirt, all uh -huh. the equities in. Right. So as I build this out, I won't have to come up with any more money. Oh, so the, out. since you have so much equity in the property, right? They just give you the loan. You don't have to put out any more down payment. Yeah, and I could actually pull cash out of them if I wanted to, but I, I don't. Gotcha. I, just, I like to, because the worst case scenario, let's say I built 12 houses and I can't sell one. I, I've been with my same banker for 25 years. He'll just turn them out for five years and let me turn them into rentals. Okay, gotcha. So I will never be... <clears throat> the builder who has to hand the keys back to the bank. Yeah, that's a bad position to be in. Yep. And I, and I don't borrow. Um, I only do a very rare amount of business with like a private or hard money lender. Um, simply because they don't, a lot of times they don't have the ability to term a loan out. If it's due, it's due. And if you can't pay it or refinance it, they're going to take it. Right. Okay. Where my bank can, you know, they're, they're a $5 billion bank. And if they want to give me 10 or 12 rentals, I can do that. To me, banking relationships are key to what we do. And, and like I said, it's, this is 25 years of being with the same banker. You know, I started with a hundred thousand dollar line of credit with him in uh, 1992 or three to go buy Timberland in Oregon and uh, buy 07, I had that up to about $20 million with him. By 09, we had to pare it down to five or six. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't kick me to the curb totally like a lot of guys got. 
and he and he kept me with uh, lines of credit so I could work through the downturn and um, and then they started feeding me their REOs. <clears throat> That's another reason why you get in with your banker. I mean, I was getting fed lots for a third of what they were worth, you know, at the peak, and they were giving me the construction loans. So they were providing me an income and I was getting them out of lots and they didn't, you know, the, these weren't going out to the open public. You know, you couldn't come in and, and, you know, you could if you paid cash, but if you, uh, if you wanted financing, they weren't doing any vertical. So they kept, they kept the vertical spec financing for me. I was on a very short leash, but it allowed me to build 10, 12, 20 houses and, you know, bring in some decent revenue and help them out. And so I'm just, I'm a big proponent of local community commercial banks and having that great relationship with your banker. Absolutely. Relationships are everything in this business. You know, a lot of people talk about, especially the wholesalers and new investors, they like doing like prospecting work, talking to individual people, but it might be better to just have really good relationships with, like you said, brokers or commercial bankers. Yeah. Uh, you know, for me, um, the whole wholesaling, you know, basically selling real estate without a license type thing. I don't, I don't really deal with those folks much. I find that I've tried a little bit, but I'm sure there's some good ones out there, but the majority of them, um, are, are either beginners and, and, and you got to do all the work for them anyway. And it's really all it is is a lead. And then they get, sometimes they'll get pretty, you know, they want a huge slice of the pie and the deal, deal doesn't work. Right. So they a lot of times the wholesalers are, um, you know, they're preying on newbies who can't find deals any other way. That's right. But I, I in all honesty, I get 90% of my stuff right off the MLS. Just because you know how to do the value add correctly to get your profit. Exactly. Yeah. And we watch them. And then, then I have a whole network of brokers that, you know, Hey Jay, I got this deal. Uh, the sellers are going to let me run it by my three or four buyers before I put it on MLS. Mm -hmm. make an offer. Because they, they know I, I can close in 10 days and I'm not going to, you know, brokers are like anybody else. I mean, if they can give, you know, me a deal, or somebody who's never bought a piece of property or is on their second or third. And I can go and look at that and then 24 or 48 hours say, yes, it's a go. And then close in seven or eight days. You know, I mean, they're going to give it to me before they give it to somebody just starting out. That's right. Who, who may get all nervous and back out at the last minute anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So besides your initial tip of, you know, being stopped by analysis by paralysis or, underwriting with, uh, you know, paper returns, they should probably also focus a lot on networking as much as they can, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think networking is, is super important. It's, you know, I, I look at it, it's like that 15 degrees of separation. You just never know. <clears throat> I mean, if I look back on my career, chance meetings with people and then being able to have meaningful conversations with them have turned into very long-term relations now and again to be fair I started out being a real estate broker so my job was to go meet and sell people property so a lot of the people that I dealt with that I was selling their property for them or I was broke you know I was representing them buying a lot of those folks turned into my investors because they liked me. I did a good job for them. I made them money absolutely all right Jay well thank you so much for being on the show today I really appreciated all your answers how can people get in contact with you? 
I'm going to have a website up pretty soon. Um, it's just almost ready to go. But uh, in the meantime, they can send me an email. And it's jay at jayl, and then my last name, h-i-n-r-i-c-h-s dot com. Jay, thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. Here are some of the key takeaways that I got from speaking with Jay. Once you get big enough, deals and money starts coming to you. So focus on creating great relationships with bankers, and they will take care of you for years. Work with high net worth individuals and adjust your acquisition strategy based on the market conditions. If times are looking scary, use less leverage. You never want to be in the position to have to return the keys back to the bank. For newbie investors, beware of paper returns. It may look like a property has a great cap rate, but the quality of the tenant will be very poor. They may not be able to pay the rent, or they may trash a unit, wiping out all of your gains when they turn over. I hope you learned a lot from this episode. If you liked it, please subscribe for more quality episodes. We air every Wednesday and Sunday. Thanks, and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It'll take less than a second, and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at seanpanrealty at gmail.com. That's S-E-A-N-P-A-N-R-E-A-L-T-Y at gmail.com. Thanks, and have a great day.